Hello, and welcome to Always Take Notes. Before we get started, we'd like to make a plea to support us on Patreon. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please consider supporting us there. For as little as $2 a month, you would help us pay our social media editor and our producer and help us keep the show going. If you contribute on the crowdfunding platform Patreon, you can get a great set of awards, including a sheaf of successful magazine pitches from myself and Rachel uh, and other former hosts and friends of the show. And we'd also like to give a shout out to our most recent Patreon. Who is that? Emanuela Dacronor. Thank you so much for your contribution. Simon's going to tell everyone a little bit about Emanuela's work. So Emanuela is a aspiring novelist. She's a winner of a Jacaranda Award and a recent graduate of the MA in Creative Writing at Birkbeck. Thanks again, Emanuela. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Rachel and myself spoke with the novelist Alexander McCall-Smith. In this remotely recorded episode, we spoke to Alexandra about his rapid writing pace and prolific output, about the moral questions in detective novels, and the question of cultural appropriation. As Rachel said, we recorded this remotely towards the start of lockdown, before we'd really figured out how to do remote recordings technically, so the sound quality is a bit ropey. Apologies for that. The good news is that we've now made some technical improvements, and so for other remotely recorded episodes in the future, the quality should be a great deal better. Welcome, Alexander McCall-Smith, to Always Take Notes. I wondered if we could talk about your extraordinary schedule when you're writing. You start at three in the morning and write a thousand words an hour. When did this start and how? It varies a bit, uh, but I'm often, as you say, in the very early hours of the morning. And I find that those hours are really quite productive because there are no disturbances. Uh, I think uh, one's mind tends to be quite fresh that stage of the day. I've been doing that uh, for quite a long time. It, it varies. I mean, there'll be times when I won't get up at uh, those unearthly hours, but um, it's something which I, I find is works quite well. I do go back to bed. I, I make sure that I get my statutory seven hours or whatever it is that we're meant to get each day. So I will I'll work between, say, three or four in the morning and, say, six, uh, half past six, something like that. And uh, I find that I get a, a lot of a lot done. Um, I'm very conscious of the fact uh, that I'm very fortunate in being able to write quite quickly. So I will often, by breakfast, have written a couple of thousand words, which means that the the day is then available uh, for 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 other things because there are always other things that seem to need to be done. Um, I find that I can't really write very well in the afternoon, but um, I might write further in the morning. So that's my that's my schedule. Um, in the past, uh, it's been, I suppose, a rather busy existence with a lot of touring. I do quite a lot of touring, a lot of uh, book festivals, so many book festivals these days. And that, of course, um, uh, changed when our life became rather different with the coronavirus. So um, that, I think, probably going to have a very major impact, already has had a major impact on the um, literary festival scene. And the perennial uh, question that comes up when we have novelists and fiction writers on the show is whether they are a, I mean, different terms here, but a plotter or a plunger. So whether they're someone who works out the structure and shape Mm -hmm. of their novels, be that with post-its on the wall or elaborate spreadsheets and things like that, and has everything confirmed before going in. And people who who dive in and kind of follow where they're where yes. the pen takes them. Where, where do you sit on that one? 
Well, I think I'm I'm very much more on the plunger side. I rather like that term you use, the plungers. It's uh, it's uh, I think it's quite descriptive of the process. Uh, I stand in admiration of people who have closely worked out, very carefully worked out plots, uh, and people who have the uh, posted notes. Uh, you know, I'm I'm most impressed with that, but I tend not to to do it. I have a very general idea of what the um, main feature of a book will be, uh, I suppose, the main plot uh, is uh, is there in my mind. But that may be just one subject, one matter. And of course, there may be all sorts of subplots, um, many of which uh, I haven't anticipated uh, before I start the novel. So uh, I'm certainly of the, I suppose I might call it the organic school in that respect, and that I think that a, a novel may grow around one as one one writes it and and indeed that that is certainly the case in my experience in that uh, things will happen in the making of the novel which i hadn't in any way anticipated before i started i think that fiction uh, comes to a very great extent uh, from the subconscious mind the human mind is always interrogating the world and and wondering about what would happen if those sort of what if questions are very, very much part of the process of, of uh, creating a narrative. So uh, I will be surprised sometimes by developments in the book. Um, I could be writing about something and then lo and behold, something happens which uh, takes me completely by surprise. And this is something that obviously has been dreamed up by my subconscious mind and has surfaced. So. I find that the process of writing, in, in my particular case, is, is one of, of getting in touch with the subconscious mind, this, this mind that's creating stories, and then, in a sense, to, to use a word that people sometimes use in this context, channeling that in a way. Um, I, don't, I don't hear a, a voice. I hear a rhythm. Um, I hear a sort of beat in my mind, and the words just come from that. So I don't, I don't really have to sit and think what is going to happen next. It just comes. I read that you wrote the Department of Sensitive Crimes in five weeks. What's the longest that you've taken um, to write a book? There have been books in the past that I've never finished, and so one might talk in terms of a number of years. I suppose of books that I've started and then finished and published, probably five or six months would be long for me. Usually, I, I think in terms of um, three to four months, about four months would be right. And, I, and I, often I'm, I'm working on more than one book at the same time because I write about five or six books a year. So that means that I've got usually got two on the go. At the moment, for example, I have two on the go. I've got, uh, in fact, I've got three on the go. So I'll, I'll move between them. One will be the, the main responsibility so or obligation should I put it that way at a particular time in that my life consists of deadlines the books are all i suppose planned by the publishers well in advance i my, my year or two ahead is uh, planned by the the publishers so i know the date on which i must submit a book in a particular series i'm a bit of a serial novelist i, I tend to write books in series and so um, I know that each year there's a season for a particular series. At the moment, I'm in my Maramotsui season, and I will finish the 
next um, more months we will quite soon. What is the role of, of editing and revision then, given this, the extraordinarily mm. prolific nature of your output and you're producing first draft very quickly? Mm. How, how do you go about revising and editing? Uh, well, I, I find that I, I have very light editing from my editors at the publishing houses in that I will occasionally get a few, a few suggestions about perhaps saying a little bit more about a particular incident in, in the novel, something of that sort. But often, none at all. That's not to say that they're not doing their job. They are. They're reading and they, they pay, pay close attention to it. And of course, uh, I get uh, very good uh, copy editing. I, I, I think copy editors are unsung um, heroes of the publishing industry because they will be the ones who will find inconsistencies uh, in a way in which the editor at the publishing house may not be looking for that in, in quite the same way in which a copy editor looks for it. So uh, I do find copy editors, particularly if you're in the hands of a copy editor who has edited a number of your books, these uh, editors can remember things uh, that you forget yourself. And so they'll say, oh, excuse me, that character in the previous book was called something different. Something of the, well, that's a, you know, that's a serious uh, example with maybe less uh, obvious errors that creep in. Uh, then, as I say, it's, I'm, I'm very fortunate in that I have very, very light editing, which is just as well, because I, often we have very little time between the completion of manuscript and the uh, putting of the book into production. It's, it's all done really quite quickly. They have a synopsis of the book at a quite an early stage because the publishers will have their sales conferences and whatnot and the editor will have to go and speak to people about the book. So they've got to have a general idea of what it's about. That, of course, can lead to embarrassment when the editor's gone and described a book in particular terms and then you produce a manuscript which bears very little relation to what the editor has, uh, has sold to the colleagues, so to speak. They sometimes write the blurb in advance and then you have to say to them, uh, well, I'm sorry, but you know, there isn't a horse in this story, as, uh, as you've suggested, that sort of thing. Often before I've written the book, the cover's there, and the title is there often before I've, I've written the book. Didn't that famously happen with The Great Gatsby, that the, the cover, that very iconic painted cover was done before uh-huh. it was written? And there's a whole kind of nest of scholarship about this being a book that's oh, really? influenced by its cover rather than... <laughs> well, I, I didn't, I didn't know that. That's very interesting. I can imagine that that would, that could happen. Uh, I think if somebody presented me with a cover and said, "Write a book for this cover," I would probably say, "Well, yes, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be quite intrigued by that." Actually, I like writing stories about photographs. Uh, I've been doing quite a lot of that in recent years, getting these orphaned photographs, photographs that um, nobody really knows who's in them. They're old black and white photographs of the sort that people have in their attic. And um, you look at it and you see these people and you think, what are they doing? What's their, what's their, their backstory? What's their life like? And uh, it's, I find that very, very inspirational, actually. I've done two books so far which have been based entirely on these black and white, old black and white photographs. And uh, I'm doing another one at the moment. Uh, and I, I enjoy that greatly. It's fascinating. You look at these these pictures and you see the people looking back at you from this vanished world. I tend to write about 
pictures, which you, you really want to make sure that the people are probably safely no longer with us because you wouldn't want to create a, a story around somebody who might still be alive. That obviously could be very intrusive. Um, so I tend to write about photographs which look as if they've been taken in the 1920s or 30s, sometimes a little bit later. I like to imagine that you're about to get a deluge of artwork and photographs from people <laughs> in the hope of inspiring your next book. <laughs> roll, roll it on, roll it on. I, 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 I'd be delighted to do that. Um, I mean, I've had some wonderful photographs in one of my collections there. I was given most extraordinary photographs by Historic Environment Scotland from their big collection of uh, old photographs. And uh, I had great fun uh, imagining what was happening in the uh, in the photographs. Uh, really terrific fun. Well, how have um, some of the other ideas for your novels come about? Well, uh, they tend to be very small things that I've noticed that I've, uh, I, I feel that uh, this is something that could, could appear in a book. Uh, it could be something that somebody says. It could be uh, something that I've read somewhere. It could be a, um, a story in a newspaper. All of, the, all of the, these things provide a very fertile sources for, 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 for fiction. In the past, I've, I've read about things in law reports, for example, the very first number one ladies detective agency series has a story in it of um, uh, uh, an immersion baptism in Botswana that went wrong, where the um, the reverend took the the sinners down to the river, took uh, seven sinners down to the river and immersed them in the waters of the river, and only six came out, and this led to a criminal prosecution um, because a crocodile was lying in wait, and this was a real case. So that obviously was uh, something that I could use for fictional purposes. Of course, one always feels a little bit awkward about using cases like that, where which have been perhaps rather tragic for somebody. So I have lots of notebooks. I've probably got about probably about thirty current notebooks, little notebooks in which I write ideas, and uh, these uh, come up at uh, any particular. Um, stage. So, I mean, I'm holding one of these at the moment, and it's got notes about what will be volume three in my new Swedish series, the Department of Sense of Crime series. And uh, there's a little note that says, um, issue of attribution of a painting, arguments over attribution. So that's just, uh, I read somewhere about uh, people arguing about attribution of a painting and how people get can get very cross if an authority, an art authority, doesn't give them the attribution they want for that particular painting. And uh, that struck me as being a, a potential story. And then underneath it is a little note saying, Martin, who is Ulfag's dog in the Department of Sensitive Crime stories, I've got a note to the effect that Martin is going to be, uh, he's, he's a rather sympathetic dog. I like putting dogs into my stories. Martin is the only dog in Sweden uh, who's been taught, he, he's deaf, uh, but he's been taught to lip-read in Swedish. And uh, uh, I've just put a note to say, Martin is going to get uh, badly injured uh, by eventually catching a squirrel. Because dogs dogs have aspirations to catch squirrels. Rarely, rarely fulfilled. <laughs> rarely fulfilled. The squirrel always gets away. Uh, but in this particular case, Martin is going to... Um, 
is going to catch the squirrel, but of course a, a, a squirrel will give you a very nasty bite, and so he's going to be badly bitten, and so he'll go back to the vet who appears in one of these. And the vet is treating Martin for depression uh, because uh, Martin has um, a seasonal affective disorder, and uh, so it's, you know it's all the it's all, all quite involved. There. I, I was wondering just a bit before coming coming back to, to Sweden, whether we could yeah. talk a bit about your your kind of parallel professional lives that you had. So you you had yes. this whole academic career alongside being being a writer, and how yes. how that came about. I was reading the, the piece that you wrote in the Guardian about being in Northern Ireland in the seventies, um, yes. and then yes. had you originally wanted to be a writer but felt you should have a proper job? How how did it work, and then yeah. how did one eventually kind of take yes. over the other? Well. Uh, I, I think I probably all, always wanted to be a writer. I, mean, I remember, as many people uh, remember, writing when they were children, and I, I loved doing that. And I, I, I wrote quite a lot when I was a little boy. I, I sent my first manuscript off to a publisher when I was eight. Um, I wrote, I wrote a, a story which I remember the title was called He's Gone, uh, obviously tremendously melodramatic. And it must have been just a page or two. And I sent it off to a publisher. And the publisher, believed it or not, wrote back, which was really, really kind, and said, uh, you know, that uh, unfortunately wouldn't be able to publish my, my book. Uh, I, re I remember nothing about that manuscript. I don't, I don't remember who he was, where he went, or why he went, but he, he did go. So I remember writing, and I, I, I wrote as a, as, a, as a child, as children often do. And then I, I became an academic lawyer. I ended up as professor of medical law at the University of Edinburgh. Belfast, in fact, uh, that uh, article to which you refer, uh, was my first job at Queen's University of Belfast, where I, I, I taught law uh, at a very interesting and quite dramatic time in uh, Belfast's history. And uh, then I, uh, I continued with that. So I had an academic career, which I enjoyed greatly. I found that very fulfilling, and I specialized in, eventually specialized in medical law. Uh, I also taught uh, criminal law, uh, but uh, medical law was my, my particular field, and eventually I was, I was made uh, professor of that subject at uh, Edinburgh. And that involved another interest of mine, which is um, philosophy and moral philosophy. Bioethics uh, was part of it. And so that enabled me to indulge my interest in these rather interesting issues of scientific policy, medical policy, and bioethics, all of those factors. And uh, I became quite involved in quite a number of committees dealing with those sorts of issues uh, latterly in my career. And in the meantime, I was uh, writing in my spare time. And I started off, I suppose, the, the first breakthrough, although it was, a, it was a, a very minor breakthrough, was back in, I think it must have been about 1978 or thereabouts, when I entered a literary competition run by Chambers, the publishers in Edinburgh, who publishes, you know, the dictionary and various other things. And they, they wanted to publish rather more um, general uh, works. And so they had a literary competition uh, into which I went. I entered it. And I entered two manuscripts. One was a novel for adults, and the other one was the category of children's uh, books. And I, I was uh, very fortunate in that I was one of the winners of that. But I won 
the wrong category. As far as I was concerned, I was hoping that my novel would uh, would win, but it didn't. And I won the Children's uh, Fiction Prize there. And that led me to an agent in London, a wonderful agent for children's books, the late uh, Gina Pollinger. And Gina was uh, a marvelous, marvelous agent. She took such pains with her writers. She helped her writers immensely. And she encouraged me to write more children's books. So I did. And my first children's book was published, I think, in about 1980 uh, with Hamish Hamilton. And I continued thereafter. And I wrote eventually, well, I must have written about 40, 50 children's books over the years. And um, I continued to do that. And then I started to write short stories. And then I wrote... um, I wrote an unpublished novel, which I just kept in a drawer and disposed of eventually. And then I wrote The Number One Ladies Detective Agency, which was my first uh, published novel. And then uh, I wrote a few more. And I was still uh, Professor of Medical Law at Edinburgh. And this was all being done in my spare time. But then the books took off in the United States. And I uh, had to make a decision. There were obviously a lot of demands being made of me, and I had to make a decision about what I would do. And I, I think a career change is is quite um, a good thing to experience. And I decided that I would take an unpaid leave of absence from, uh, from the chair. Uh, the university was very good about that. Of course, the universities are always very happy if people say they're going to go off without a salary. So I, I did that. And I then realized that I wouldn't be able to go back because uh, just so many uh, demands were being made, and I became a full-time novelist, and that's what I now do. So that's how it happened. So at what point did it become clear that you weren't going to go back to academia? Was it after the number one ladies' detective agency, the yes. first book in that series? Uh, well, in fact, I had written, I had written four of those books uh, before I had to make a decision. Because to begin with, the books were published in a fairly small way. Uh, the number one day's detective agency had an initial print run with its publisher then. It was a small publisher at that stage in Scotland. Initial print run of 1,500 copies. And I had some generous reviews, and they said, we'll write a sequel to that. And so I wrote Tales of Giraffe, which was the second one. And I did, I suppose, a year apart thereafter for the three Three years thereafter, I wrote one of those books a year all the time while still really in my day job. Then those books were imported into the United States by Columbia University Press that had an association with the press that owned this press that had published these books. In other words, Edinburgh University Press. And EUP books were distributed in North America by Columbia. Uh, which was a, a, a quite a big uh, university press in New York. And they imported them, put them at the back of their catalogue, and gave them to their reps to pass on to various booksellers, in mostly in New England. And um, then nothing much happened. And so they ordered a few copies of these books. They, you know, might have ordered, um, you know, each bookshop might have ordered five copies, three or four copies, something like that. And then they started to be bought by people 
and passed from hand to hand. So it was what the publishers called organic growth. So they started to reorder and they put in orders for quite a number of copies. So they might say, send us another thousand copies or whatever. And this, of course, caused tremendous surprise back at HQ in Edinburgh with the publishers there who had been talking about very much smaller print runs. And suddenly these, these large orders came in. They fulfilled them. And then the New York Times did a full-page article about the books, and that was picked up by the Random House group. And they contacted us and said, we'd like to publish these in uh, mainstream editions in the U.S. So uh, we said yes, obviously, and uh, I went over to New York to meet my new editor in the publishing house there. And I remember the day when I realized my life would change. I thought that I'd just go for a cup of coffee and, you know, say hello, and that would be it. But I went in mid-morning into these rather glittering offices. Uh, they were then on Park Avenue and went in. And I was taken to meet all sorts of people. Everybody seemed to be a vice president. Uh, because everybody in an American company who <laughs> start off as vice president. And so I met all these vice presidents. And um, I thought, well, this is uh, interesting. And then they, then they took me for lunch, which uh, surprised me greatly, because lunch in New York is virtually illegal. You work so hard that they don't have lunch. But they said they'd hired a whole restaurant. So we went up to the restaurant, and I, I sat there being looked at by these, all these people. And they obviously were wondering, you know, what are we going to do with him? And then I went out at four o'clock after the meeting, went out into the street, and I remember thinking, my life is going to change. And it did. And um, I uh, went back to the Harvard Club, where I was staying on a reciprocal basis with the club of which I was a member. And uh, they had asked me, the publishers had said, are you comfortable in your accommodation? And I said, yes, uh, very comfortable. The bathroom is only about 20 yards from my room. And they were horrified. You're sharing a bathroom? You're sharing that? They obviously thought this was inappropriate. And uh, it gave me a big limo to drive around in. <laughs> not, not drive it myself. I had a driver with a uniform. It was very funny. <laughs> It's a, it's a rule of the podcast that we always ask about money and about how it kind of interfaces with, with your writing life. And you yes. sort of mentioning that moment when, when you sort of clear that, that it had made it. I mean, how, you know, presumably for, until, until you'd left your job, you had a salary from that and, and, yes. and so forth. Yeah. Um, how has, you know, you've clearly made, a, made a, a, a large or relatively large amount of money for your writing. How has that changed things? Has it changed what the work feels like? Has it changed? Are you now more expected to spend more time on the road? I mean, this, this, this whole, we always ask this whole mm. nexus of money and writing. How has that yeah. worked for you? Oh, well, yes. Yeah, I mean, it's a, potentially, it's a potentially awkward question. It's a potentially embarrassing question. But I think that most authors obviously uh, have a bit of a financial struggle. And most authors have to have another job. Some don't. Some manage to, to make it without um, taking on another job. For most of my career... I was in another job, and this happened to me at a later stage. I was immensely fortunate. It, it, it happened in, in a, a fairly convincing way. I think from my point of view, the big difference and the very positive thing was that it enabled me to write what I wanted to write. 
so it gave me freedom. And I think that if you ask any writer who's been fortunate enough to be able to survive on royalties, I suspect you'd get that answer. I suspect you must get that answer quite often that they equivocated with freedom. Uh, and that certainly is, is the case. So I didn't feel that I had to write what the market wanted or what I thought the market would want or what um, I thought editors might want me to write. And I had immensely supported publishers who were prepared to to let me write what I wanted to do. So that, that made a big difference. Now, obviously, that sort of fairly major change in one's life has concomitant aspects to it, uh, which could perhaps be less positive. So you lose, you may lose privacy, uh, you may lose control of your time. My life for the last almost 20 years has been largely controlled by others who, who they don't dictate the shape of my existence, but they, they play a major part in, in determining what I do. And I'm very grateful to them for, for that. I'm not complaining about that. But you do lose a certain autonomy as a result of that. You then also acquire readership, and the readership is very obviously very important to you, but it, it brings with it certain moral obligations. As far as the financial side of, uh, of it is, is concerned, it does mean that you, you can support various things that you want to support. And uh, that's been pretty important for me. I mean, that's been, a, I suppose, the greatest privilege flowing from this has been that I've been able to, uh, I've got a little imprint of my own, uh, which is not a commercial imprint, but I've, I've published books by various people that wouldn't otherwise necessarily see the light of day but which I've been in a position to, to publish. And, and that's been tremendously rewarding. So I've done a little outfit, has done about eight books of poetry, which wouldn't, I think, otherwise have been able to see the light of day by various people. I also published a, a, a couple of books by friends' mothers. Uh, in fact, we were probably the principal publishers in the UK of books by friends' mothers. Uh, there's are memoirs of friends' mothers. <laughs> <laughs> now, I hope this doesn't lead to the submission of many uh, <laughs> memoirs of mothers. But uh, so that's been, that's been great. I, I've also found I've been able to help musicians and composers. That's been a great pleasure for me. I've, I've written uh, fairly extensively for composers now. I write libretti and uh, song cycles. The you know the, the the words for song cycles, that sort of thing, and that that is uh, that's true. I mean, you've sold tens of millions of copies of your books, mm. but in interviews you often talk about this in terms of good fortune and luck. I mean, yes. why is that? Because I mean, obviously your novels have appealed on a on a huge scale. Well, so thank you. I mean, uh, I suppose I I sh I shouldn't really talk about that too much myself, but. I do feel that I've been very fortunate. I do think that I've, I've had um, various strokes of luck. And there's absolutely no doubt about that in a literary career. Luck, uh, good fortune. Uh, what the philosophers talk, mor uh, talk about as moral luck actually does apply. There are many people who write wonderful books that are never published because they haven't had the good fortune of... of uh, encountering an editor in a publisher who's 
prepared to believe in what they write, or they've uh, been writing things which aren't in tune with the zeitgeist. That can be a problem. For example, if one thinks of um, Barbara Pym, there was a period when Barbara Pym was silenced because her books, her novels, were thought to be too old-fashioned, which I think was a great tragedy. Uh, she came back into fashion, and she was able to publish again. But uh, it's, it's a great pity to think what the world lost during that period of, um, I thought, uh, rather wrongfully imposed silence on her. To what extent do you see yourself writing in a kind of tradition of, of white African writers, thinking of Kurtzia yeah. or Doris Lessing or things like that? Yeah. And also, how, to what extent has that been a source of tension of people saying, you know, you're a, you're a kind of white Anglo-Saxon mm. writing narrative set mm. in, this, in yeah. these cultures? How, how, has, how has both those things worked out? Uh, I, didn't, I didn't really see myself in, in the, that context in that I think that if you look at um, uh, Doris Lessing and even more so uh, John Kutzea, I'm a great admirer of John Kutzea's uh, fiction. I, I think uh, Disgrace was a, was a remarkable, uh, you know, very powerful book. And of course, Muriel Spark also had uh, some, some short stories and uh, material there. Um, I didn't really regard myself as being in that tradition. I spent my childhood in what was then southern Rhodesia, at the tail end of the British Empire, really. And I think that that gave me a certain uh, fondness for uh, that part of Africa, uh, which I've been able to carry on indulging, so to speak, by uh, having a long connection with uh, Botswana. I, I also, I lived briefly in Swaziland. I taught at the university in Swaziland and then taught at the university in, in Botswana. So I go back quite, quite a long, long way with Botswana. I've been visiting Botswana for many years. Uh, but I, I regard myself as being, uh, I'm an outsider. I'm definitely an outsider writing about somebody else's culture and somebody else's country. I do that with, I feel, complete respect. I'm conscious of the fact that I'm writing about somebody else. I think, in my particular case, what I write about uh, there, I write with admiration, and I've never sought to conceal that, that I admire that society. I admire that country. It's got uh, a remarkable record, and I, I admire what they, they uh, have achieved. I'm not writing critically, and I think it would be quite the whole set of different issues if I were writing as a social realist writer, and if I were writing matters uh, about matters, political or socioeconomic issues, things of that sort, <clears throat> I'm not doing that. So I'm conscious of the issues surrounding that. I think, though, that an author uh, should be able to write about anything, really. I don't think you should censor uh, authors that uh, people can write about the world that they happen to see. Uh, I think that they need to be careful in that they could get things wrong, and they shouldn't uh, seek to uh, hoodwink the public and say that they're writing from a different perspective, from the perspective that they actually have. So um, I didn't really worry too much about that. 
I mean, I'm, my books are set all over the place. Most of my writing is set in Scotland, uh, but I also write uh, quite a few of my recent books. Parts of them have been set in Australia. Australia appeals to my imagination. I'm interested in Australian history. I'm interested in the physical country of Australia. I find it that haunting and uh, really that clicks with me. Uh, and now I've got this new series set in Sweden. So uh, we're straying into Scandinavia. Most of it, as I say, is, is written on the home territory of Scotland. But I, I feel that if somebody else wants to come along and write about Scotland, as indeed they do, that's absolutely fine. And to judge it by what it is. Do you go into books kind of knowing that this is going to turn into a series or do you start thinking this is going to be a standalone novel and then, it, you know, it turns into something else? And if, uh, and if not, you know, how does, how does that change the writing process? Yes, I think the, I, I have started what I have believed at the time to be standalone novels. So I started, I wrote a book called My Italian Bulldozer, uh, which is about a character called Paul Stewart, who's a, a cookery writer who goes off to Tuscany. I mean, that's another case of my, my setting things in, in other cultures. I'm a great uh, Italophile, and um, I've spent some time in, in Italy. So that I thought would be a single book, but I rather liked the character, and so he, he appeared in, in a sequel, and that does appear to become a series. I've written two so far, the Paul Stewart series. The second one is called The Second Worst Restaurant in France. It takes him to France and I think the next one I'm probably going to set in Vancouver, uh, which is a city that I know quite uh, well. Uh, so that was an example of a, of a book which, which became a series. Uh, the Ulfarg set in Sweden, I think I knew at the beginning uh, that that would be a series. And I do have a slight tendency to make, make whatever I write into the beginning of a series. So I've got my Scotland Street series. I'm currently writing volume 14 of that. I've got my Isabel Dalhousie series, and I think I'm on volume 13 or uh, 13 or 14. It's just about to be published. I've got the number one latest detective agency series, and with, so on. With so I, Sweden, I, we, I read the the novel that we were sent, which I found fascinating. But I was wondering, did you know much about Sweden before going into this? Like, what is your? <laughs> do you have a connection with Sweden? What? what why Sweden? And how? Put, and how Sweden as well? You put it very politely. Put it very politely. I don't know if you remember uh, H.R.F. Keating's uh, Inspector Goethe novels no. set in, in uh, Mumbai. Okay. Uh, Keating wrote those before he'd been to what was then Bombay at all. And he did it on the basis of maps and travel books, uh, guides to Bombay. And uh, the BBC did a wonderful program. They, they took um, Harry Keating, who was the uh, crime reviewer of the Times, they took him off to, to um, Mumbai and introduced him to a real detective uh, inspector of the Bombay CID. And this chap said, but your books are absolutely accurate. You know, this is a really very, very clear picture. But he, he'd never been there. Uh, <laughs> so well, what I'm saying is that you can write. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very risky, risky thing to do. Uh, because you may you may commit the most awful and very obvious geographical solecisms, but um, it, as far as Sweden is concerned, no, I have been to Sweden. I haven't spent 
a lot of time in Sweden, but I have visited Sweden on a on a number of occasions. And I think we all feel that we know Scandinavia now because we've all read so many uh, Scandinavian noir novels and we've seen so many of their splendid television series. You know, we've all got a we've all picked up a bit of Danish. Uh, <laughs> A few words, you know, where uh, one one goes to Scandinavia and expects to see the subtitles appearing underneath people as they speak. But these these books are lighthearted, so they're taking a lot of the of the themes of what we uh, what we think goes into uh, Scandinavian noir. I call them Scandinavian blood because they they don't deal with any serious crimes at all, and so I'm having a bit of fun. And a lot of it is is the sort of general idea that we have of Sweden, uh, you know, poking a bit of fun at it, but in a in a fond in a fond way. Critics and and fans have said that your mm. work does have a kind of light-hearted tone to it. I was yes. interested to read an interview with you where you said that you would never kill off a major character. I mean, yes. why is that? And um, is that because you? feel that you owe something to fans or is it just because it would be kind of too dark and too depressing well a, a combination of those i i think uh, i mean i i very freely admit uh, that i my writing is at the what one might call the affirmative end of the spectrum uh, my writing is generally positive uh, that's just the way i want to write i take delight in um, social comedy I take delight in in positive situations. That's not in any sense to uh, suggest uh, that uh, fiction shouldn't dwell on the bleak and on the harsh face of our, our times. Uh, it must. And of course, there are many authors who are very good chroniclers of those aspects of our life. And the world is undoubtedly a veil of tears. You would have to be very short-sighted or a complete Pollyanna uh, not to recognize the suffering of the world and the difficulties of our existence. But all that I would say is that uh, there's a role in literature for books that dwell on what one might call affirmative or positive matters. And you can, at the same time, you can say uh, very profound things about the human condition when writing in that register. So I think that uh, you don't have to be shallow. You don't have to be, you don't have to lack seriousness. In fact, you must be serious to write uh, in that way, I think, um, because you really want to deal with the uh, broad range of human emotions. And so I do write about um, things that are, uh, that are tragic. I write about loneliness and loss uh, and matters of that sort, but I leaven it with um, other uh, other states of mind and 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 registers. And you've written uh, these these series of novels, but you've also written mm. in the serial form. Is that right? Yes. So in in the manner of you know, a Dickens or someone like yes. that. How have you found that experience? Well, I, I found that extremely interesting and uh, immensely enjoyable. Uh, I started doing that. Uh, it must be about 15 years ago in the Scotsman newspaper. Uh, I'd been on tour and I'd been in San Francisco and Amy Tan had said, when you come to San Francisco, we'll have a party. And so when I turned up there, Amy had had a party and one of the guests was Armstead Mopac. Yeah. 
uh, author of Tales of the City. And uh, I had a conversation with Armistead at the party, and uh, he said, whatever you do, don't write a serial novel in the newspaper. And I returned to Scotland, and I wrote an article for the Herald. The Herald asked me to write about my uh, recent tour, and I did so, and I, I mentioned this conversation and said, what a pity it is that newspapers don't have serial novels in them anymore. And I was invited to lunch by the then editor of The Scotsman, uh, who said, you're on. Uh, we'll publish a serial novel if you write it. And, uh, and I uh, started to write the Scotland Street novels. And, and initially, I had absolutely no idea what was, what was going to happen in those books. And there we were faced with the imminent beginning of the, the novel in The Scotsman, and they advertised it on television and everything. So we were pretty much committed. And um, I sat down and wrote it. And I really, really enjoyed uh, writing it. And the characters flocked to me, came onto the page. Uh, some of those characters I have become very, uh, I've become very fond of in the Scotland Street books. There's a, a seven-year-old boy. He started off as six. He was six for eight years, eventually had a seventh birthday, uh, called Bertie, who has a very ambitious, pushy mother. And he's one of my favorite characters. And he indeed is a favorite of my readers all over the world. When I travel in India, for example, I, uh, my readers there come up and say, what's going to happen to Bertie? They follow the fortunes of this little boy in Scotland. So I then then found that uh, there was quite a, a handy formula for, uh, for such a, um, a novel, uh, which is to have three or four chapters of about 1,200 words each, uh, dealing with uh, a small group of characters in, with a particular instant or set of instants, and then you uh, modulate into the next um, group of three or four chapters dealing with the distinct. And so you weave backwards and forwards. And uh, I enjoy writing in that way. And readers find it very useful to be able to read a short chapter on the bus or on the train or, or whatever. And they like the continuity uh, and the continuation of the characters, because characters in fiction become friends you believe in them, and they become part of your social circle. We've all experienced that. And we often, I think, feel regret when we get to the end of uh, a novel, or indeed, I suppose you could say also, of, say, a television series, uh, where you've, you've come to like the characters. And there's a sense of, um, a sense of sadness at the end when you, when you say goodbye to the, to the, the, the characters. I tend to keep them going because I would feel regret uh, on losing them. I have I killed off a couple of characters. I killed off Lard O'Connor in my Scotland Street series. He was a, a very large Glaswegian gangster, and I had him come over to Edinburgh and have a heart attack in Edinburgh and uh, succumb. And the reason why I did that, I do regret getting rid of him, but I wanted to describe uh, a Glaswegian gangster's funeral because they have very big funerals with plumed horses and big wreaths spelling out messages. And uh, I just couldn't resist writing about such an event. So Paul Lard had to go. As we kind of come to the, the end of our conversation, which has flown mm -hmm. by, I thought it was interesting that you've mentioned the kind of moral conversation in books. How do you mm. think that conversation has played out in, in your own novels? I suppose 
I have had quite a long conversation about the world and how we are to live in it uh, with some of my characters. In some of my books, the character, the central character, has spoken to me, so to speak, has articulated all of that. So, for example, in The Number One Ladies Detective Agency, Mara Motsway, who's a person for whom I have such admiration as being this wonderful, intuitive, very intelligent, but kind woman, has, I think, um, improved me. I've learned from her. Uh, I really have. I think exploring the character, I've realized that she has these uh, very considerable depths and that she's, she represents human kindness. In others, it's been a more, a rather different conversation. My Isabel Dalhousie novels, which are set in Edinburgh, uh, the central character there is Isabel Dalhousie, who's a, a moral philosopher. She's a professional philosopher. She edits the Journal of Applied Ethics. And uh, obviously her, her approach to moral issues uh, and the question of how we are to live our lives is rather different. She approaches it from the point of view of formal, formal philosophy. That's been a wonderful conversation for me because I've I've been able to get her going on various issues in which I take an interest, and uh, uh, I've explored them through that conversation with her. So I've been very fortunate in in my characters; they've all had aspects to them that um, uh, I feel I've benefited from. I've ben- I, f- I feel I've benefited from knowing them getting to know them. Ulf Varg, my Swedish character, Ulf is, um, is being fleshed out, and I feel uh, that I've learned something from him. Several of my books have dogs as characters. There's Cyril in the Scotland Street books, the only dog in Scotland with a gold tooth. And Cyril actually has a moral life. He's tempted to bite people's ankles, and that for him is his great struggle. <laughs> well, I think that, that seems a, a very adroit place for us to draw this to a close. So, Alexander, thank you so much for taking the time and being such a, a fascinating and candid guest. Uh, we appreciate you also uh, doing this fire uh, remotely, which is never, never our preferred way to do it. And right. wishing you all the very best with your with your projects and your incredibly prolific output. Well, thank you so much. I've enjoyed our conversation greatly. Thank you very much indeed. Hello, it's us again. Listeners have asked Rachel and I to give a bit more uh, of an update on what we've been doing and our our writing and uh, other professional lives. So we're going to try and do a bit more of that this week. I'm currently uh, speaking in a Premier Inn hotel room in uh, Shropshire, where I'm reporting a magazine story for Business Week about autonomous tractors. The glamour. (laughs) (laughs) The the glamour of a Premier Inn on a weekday evening. It's exactly how it looks like in Hollywood. The profession is exactly the same. (laughs) Exactly. Um, but it's been very interesting. I've been in a field all day watching uh, a tractor drive itself without anyone on it, which was fascinating. I've learned a lot about crops and weed killer and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it's been good. I mean, this story I'd been working on for ages because the initial idea had been, it's my fourth feature for Business Week, but my initial idea had been I would follow these people who had farmed just a hectare autonomously in 2016 to 2018, 19. And they'd done that and they were now trying to expand it to a whole farm. And the idea was I was going to follow them through uh, an entire crop cycle over a year period 
and at the end um, write this big sweeping piece. And then COVID happened and they couldn't, well, first it was too wet, so they couldn't plant their crops. And then COVID happened, so they still couldn't plant their crops. And then more COVID happened, so they couldn't get the spare parts to harvest their crops. And so now they're starting again, really. Uh, but I've come up to, to watch them. So it's been um, it's been interesting. And I, I'm, I'm literally here all week. So that's me. Rachel, what about you? I am now in full swing of my diploma, which has been fascinating. Um, learning about things like beats and scene breakdowns and going back to good old Aristotle's poetics and catharsis and all of that. So um, it's quite nice being a student again. I'm really enjoying it. This is Rachel's uh, screenwriting, script editing masters that you're doing, right? Script development diploma at the National Film and Television School. Okay. So it's quite nice to have an excuse to watch television and films in the evening and call it work <laughs> i mean that's kind of always been my job anyway but uh <laughs> have they made you uh, read save the cat no i do have a copy though and i also have is it called like save the cat the cat strikes back or something there's like a sequel <laughs> which i'm going to be taking on holiday and delving into but there's quite a lot of sort of skepticism about such manuals in the in the biz so okay. i think you read them and you can ignore them <laughs> at the same time <laughs> these are these are like famous screenwriting manuals yeah i think the the issue people have with it is that it becomes quite didactic you know at the midway point exactly 50 percent of the way through your film you need to have a turning point that kind of thing yeah. um and that like all is all is lost moment yeah the point of no return and all of that yeah, yeah. i mean i think all the films have those but it's just you know where you put them and there's no point saying at 10 minutes in you need to have this yeah. um although i'm sure that works for some people who else is on the program uh, a lot of people already working within film, so I'm okay. a bit of an outsider, but not exclusively. And the uh, course leader is a script developer who works at the Berlinale and at film festivals around the world and on various writing programmes. So in very capable hands, obviously. And is your home office up and functioning? It is not. <laughs> so uh... Rachel's, Rachel's IT arrangements have been, a, have been a running theme in the podcast for... Um number of months but now you're now it's you're still to be for some time i think actually i'm currently sat on the floor with my laptop on a cardboard box that's an improvement to how things have been been in the past this is not confined to rachel we had to reschedule our recording yesterday because i had brought the wrong headphones with me it's um... amateur hour isn't it really i know it's extraordinary thing goes out anyway this has been always take notes hosted by me simon acom and me rachel lloyd our producer and social media editor is Katie Lee. Our score is by Jess Danheiser and our graphic design is by James Edgar. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes, on Twitter at Take Notes Always, on Patreon at Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye. <laughs>